And have you, have you ever had to do that? Uh, no, not that. No. But I did nail a guy to the back of the door. <laughs> with a, a nail gun? No, with a, with a, with a, I had a handheld crossbow. And, uh, yeah, I, he came in, and I was like, <laughs> hello. And uh, he started arguing with me, and he came upstairs, and he insisted it was his place. And I thought, well, you've got good taste, okay. <laughs> I like the way you decorate. And he raised his hand up, and I went, <laughs> nailed it to a wall. <laughs> I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 8, The Cost of Cereal. There's this couple I started running into back when I was around 16 or 17. Let's call them Buck and Emma. It's been so long that the memories kind of faded, but I do remember they were older than me. Buck looked like some kind of half-assed skinhead, and Emma was blonde. She'd wear these flowery dresses. Anyway, the one thing I remember is that Buck was a tyrant. He would yell at Emma and boss her around, and it seemed like the smallest thing would set him off. To make matters worse, Buck knew how to inject, but Emma did not. And Buck used to use this to run Emma's life. She made the money, but he held the drugs, and did most of them. One day, I saw Emma alone and dope sick. She asked me to help her inject, and I did. But when Buck found out, he was furious. I remember him standing in the door, fists all balled up and ready to go. I fucking hated that guy. Another time, I watched Buck choke her out, and I didn't know what to do. I wanted to pull him off her, but she just looked at me and shook her head. I was just a kid, and she knew that he would kick my ass. She told me to leave, and I hated it, but that's what I did. I left. Sometimes I wonder how things turned out for her. I wonder if I should have showed her how to inject on her own. Maybe that would have made a difference. Emma's not the only woman I've met who's been through something like this. A controlling boyfriend or a John who uses drugs as a way to hold power. But we don't hear those stories very often. Maybe that's because most of the people who are dying of overdoses are men. But fatal overdoses aren't the whole story. The truth is, this crisis shapes life for people like Emma in a very different way than it shapes mine. And even if I know this, I don't know what it's like for her. Not really. So I decided to check out Vancouver's trans-inclusive, women's-only safe injection site. It's one of the only ones in the world. It's called Sister Space. Men aren't allowed in the place at all, but they invited me to come during the afternoon when the site was closed. I meet our producer, Polly, in front of Sister Space on Vancouver's downtown east side. It's around noon, and they're just closing up after a long night. Polly says I missed a guy who was shouting into the entrance. Okay, so there's a guy in an orange shirt and shorts, an orange shirt and shorts, and he comes up to the gate right here, and he yells, I'm coming in. And, and then what happened? All of the women just yelled, no, you're not. <laughs> Good for them. We walk inside. A couple of women are cleaning up, but there's no screwing around. They want to get on with their day. They're mopping the floor and putting things away. They lock the gate behind us as we go in. 
So how does this look compared to like other OPSs? It's bigger. It's uh, it's got a nice wooden floor and little soft seats and stuff like that. There's a large steel table in the middle and couches here and there. It's pretty bright, even though the windows are covered for privacy. And it doesn't really look like a supervised injection site. Not one that I've been to. Check out the plants. Yeah, plants and... Uh, They're rented. I didn't know you had to rent plants. Neither did I. I found that out uh, yesterday. Wow, you've been really doing the detailed reporting here. <laughs> nice one. There are posters about bad dates, bad dope, and missing women. And in one corner... There's posters of people who've died. Um, Terry Lynn Charles, Sherry McInnes, Keisha Flores. Oh, Cherise. Cherise yeah. Kiwan, our editorial board member. Her Celebration of Life poster is down there. Is that, is that what that is? Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess that's one way it is similar to other places, the, the posters of people who are gone. I didn't know my friend came here. She never mentioned it to me. It's been six months since Charisse died. When I think of her, it still hurts. I sometimes feel so angry. My throat closes up and I feel like I'm gonna puke. I don't know how many times I've seen that poster of Charisse since she passed, and I don't know why, but seeing it today, I don't feel that choking anger. I just feel sad. Leave it open and actually get this. Room. Where would you like to sit? Uh, anywhere that's comfortable for you, really. <laughs> the jugging table is not for me. Huh? So. <laughs> Did you just call the green couch a jugging table? <laughs> it's the green room. I don't know. Maybe you want to. This is Patricia Monty, but everyone calls her Pat. She plays a role kind of like a mom around here, but one that won't take any of your shit. She'll look at you over her narrow glasses and kind of waggle an eyebrow, like we're all in on the same joke. Pat's tiny, wiry, and a little stooped, so I feel like a giant galoot around her. Yeah. Can I say, just first, thanks for talking to us, and thanks for having me into this space. I feel really, uh, well, like, honored. It's this special yeah. moment, you know? Yeah, the only the only man that come in here, the only other man that comes in here and isn't really allowed in here is my pharmacist. He brings my, my meds to me here. And the first time he walked in, he was just about, I mean, like, I, I don't know if you've ever, like, had a whole bunch of little chihuahuas at you. It's terrifying. So if I was to walk in here in you the middle would, of the you, day, people you would, would say... Not, you would not walk in. Yeah, yeah, yeah you wouldn't. You would walk out. <laughs> <laughs> you would run out. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and you would have no shame, no shame about it out there because you'd get out there and the guys would be going, first time, huh? <laughs> Pat tells me she's from BC. She grew up on the downtown east side and studied biochemical engineering at the University of Victoria. She paid her tuition by stripping. You know, Do you remember a song that sort of brings that time or that <laughs> moment back to you? Is there one that if you hear it, if one of the people outside is playing it or a car drives by, that kind of Did makes I jump you... up on the drive and start going like this? Yeah. <laughs> in, in the era of um, staying alive in that, that whole era, most of, most of the top 40 were the best ones to dance to because that's what they were for. She told me she got wired in the 80s and prefers black tar heroin to anything else. 
mostly I started into opiates and things like that because I um, I have neurofibromyalgia, which is pain. It's constant. It's always there. You know, it doesn't go away. And on occasion, you know, it doesn't stop me in my tracks. You know, that's a good day. Pat said she's also had to deal with cancer throughout her life. In 2017, she was staying in palliative care. It was part of a supportive housing block on the downtown east side. I was up on the uh, seventh floor. Uh, that's their medical wing. And it's actually a palliative care. So they, they thought I was going to kick the bucket. And uh, I, was, I was going for it, too. You know, I was, you know, had a headspace that this was a good thing to do, just sort of slide out. But um, I saw this note. It was written by people who ran the palliative care place. And the note said, we're going to open a new facility, an overdose prevention site, but just for women. And we could use someone like you to help. And I thought, well, that sounds like a really good thing. And uh, I immediately got better and uh, <laughs> got a job here. I got something to do now. So, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll stick around for a while. So, Something to live for. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah. This was just after a long, cold winter. People were dying in unprecedented numbers in the streets. Emergency safe injection sites were popping up just like tents in a UN disaster zone. But some women would avoid these sites. They didn't feel safe using drugs along with stalkers or exes that had abused them or bad dates or whatever. And that's where the idea for a women's only safe injection site came from. And Pat was there since day one. The first day here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we opened up the door and we sat down. And six hours later, we closed the door (laughs) and looked at this blank piece of paper going, yeah, it's got to get better than this. So so nobody came the first day? Nobody, nobody. Were you all like sitting around this table or what would that have been? Um, The day when no one came? The the, the days, uh, there were days. How many days before somebody came? Um, Actually, I remember working a week. What What were you all doing at that time? Were you debating what it could be or were you playing Scrabble or... That's what we were doing. That's what we were doing. We were coloring. Pat points at the back wall. There are these colorful squares all over it. Up close you can see there are super intricate patterns from adult coloring books. And the colors are vibrant. So we were, we were coloring and that was actually what brought the girls in. They'd come in and they'd sit down and then they wanted to color. And so we started bringing in felts and, and, you know, books, and, and the girls would bring in just elaborate books, beautiful books, to color, and, and we've got stacks, of some more of them in there, and, um, but this is what started Sister Space. This is what Sister Space is based on. You wouldn't catch any of the staff at Insight sitting down and coloring with your, you, know, you, you just don't do that, you know. There are armadillos and elephants above the door to the office, a pink koala, and every inch of paper is covered in color. There's a few skulls and a lot of encouraging phrases, like affirmations. I did, uh, let's see, oh, that was, I did that one. Don't compromise yourself, you are all you got. Yeah, and this one. Girls just want to have fundamental rights. I noticed that one as soon as I walked in. And I did that one. And there's wow. a, yeah, there's a couple of others around here that I did. Oh, I, I did this fish. 
what's the first one? What's the one from that first week? What's the one that, from the first week? Yeah. Was, uh, I think it was this one. She persisted. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of conversations were had over pages like, like this and things like this. You know, this was a freehand drawing. That person was obviously very angry <laughs> about something. A lot of reds and oranges. Yeah, and but we we spoke with her and found out you know what she was really really angry about and and that it wasn't we didn't mean to be doing therapy of any kind it was just it was easy for her to talk to us through the picture than it was to talk to us and let down her guard and and talk to us and then finally she there was no reason to have a guard because really, we we're coloring we're you know, we were adults sitting there coloring away and, you know, going through reds and <laughs> having moments and, uh, but this, this is what, this is what Starry Sisters makes. Pat says she and her colleagues would go out at night putting up signs on lampposts. They walked the alleys, letting women know they could come by when the doors opened. Word about the site started spreading as more and more women came through and saw there were no strings attached. Eventually, Sister Space had about 65 or 70 women using the space every day. During those first couple of weeks, Pat got a glimpse of something that would become really important later on. Sister Space had this one vital thing it was trying to do, reverse overdoses. And they did that but they were also doing something a lot more personal. I'll go get you a cup of tea, throw a blanket on you, you know, rock you if that's what you want me to do. You know, whatever you need to get through this and to leave here alive, I'll do for you. And, you know, and um, I will give you a hug or a kick in the ass, whichever one you need. Sister Space was a room with people sitting in it and we really had no idea, none whatsoever, as to where it was going to go or what it was going to do. And turned into this. You can. I saw a picture of Sharice Kiwaden on the wall over there, mm-hmm. who she passed in February. Mm-hmm. Did she come here? Did you know her? Yeah. yeah, she was one of our girls. A lot of the girls will come and say they use. They just want to be here, you know, and I know that there's a lot of them that will come in and they put the rigs in front of them on the table and look like they're ready to, you know, to use and fall fast asleep. They just don't have any place else to be. And they make families, they're little, you know, families here, because, you know, friends are the apolog- God's apology for family. <laughs> and that's what these girls, really, you know, really good friends are God's apology for the family that they didn't have a choice in. Okay, sword fight. Where is my place? 
Yes, I can get you a cup of coffee, huh? What would you like on it? Are you doing good? Who's calling you weirdo? Why? I'm your weirdo. Oh, I don't, think, weirdo. I don't think you're a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I definitely feel safe, safer here. What is it like? Like, how is it different? Like I said, more loving, more gentle, more emotional. One of the things Pat started to notice was the men. They would sometimes hover around the front door, and they'd sometimes yell inside, but they knew better than to come in, and it became pretty clear that for a lot of women, sister space was that one place they could go when they needed to get away from the guys. There's like land sharks out there, and you know, predators, and other names I could call them, but that just wait and we'll try to intercept them before they get here. You know, they've got their drugs and it's almost like running a gauntlet. And so they'll, they'll, they'll intercept them, you know, before they get here. So yeah. there's guys outside the door that are kind of like looming up on the women who come here, yeah. trying to steal their drugs off them. Yeah, try, trying to get them to come with them. You know, like, the, I can get you better drugs. I've got my drugs, oh nice. Then we don't have to do that, do we? The girls here are pretty strong. Our core group of girls, which are the ones that sort of came here when we were first opened and took a chance on us. And that they really, they took a chance on us. And we happened to pass muster and we're still here. And most of them are still here, unless they're some of the ones that we lost. And yeah, they, they, they are really, really, really protective of here. Pat starts to notice something else. That for a lot of women, the little things seem to make a huge difference. There was a couch you could use if you needed to inject lying down. And at Sister Space, you could get a bowl of cereal. You know all the cereals that you were told you could not supposed to eat? Oh yeah. Those are them. Captain Crunch, Fruit Loops, Corn Pops, yeah. Yeah, Fruit Loops, for sure, yeah. But then there's Rice Krispies. And, and the. I don't know why they like Rice Krispies, you know. And I, I love Rice yeah, Krispies. I, I ate them you know? yesterday for breakfast. Yeah, I, do too. I, I love them. But it's not the Rice Krispies or the cereal. It's that it's theirs. It comes from sister space. They can come in and get a bowl of cereal and sit with their friends and eat a bowl of cereal with them. It was the icon <laughs> for, for sister space where you could go have a bowl of cereal with your sisters. You know, and you could see the ones that made it through the night. For the first year, Sister Space was open 12 hours a day, like most other sites in the city. But about a year in, they extended their hours so that they were open overnight. 
Why are the hours from midnight till 6 a.m. so important? Where do you go? Where do you go? McDonald's doesn't let you sit there. Then fix. Um, there's, there aren't bathrooms down here you can go into. And if there were, you wouldn't want to. Um, where do you go? Jump into the next predator's car and hope to get out alive? Well, hell, you've just spent the last two hours getting the frickin' 20 bucks. You've got the dope. And now you've got to worry about whether the dope's going to work and you're going to be able to enjoy it. Or you're just going to get well. And nobody wants to just be getting well. I remember the times when um, Robert Picton was down here? predating down here. And yeah. is, does, does, his, <clears throat> does he sort of hang over this place like a specter? Do people still think about that? His brother comes down here, yep. And, and do people warn each other oh about yeah. him? Oh, yeah. Anybody that they're genuinely afraid of, um, they tell each other right off. Like it's, it's, it goes across here like wildfire, you know. Back in the day, serial killer Robert Picton stalked the neighborhood. Him and his brother David were pig farmers. Back in the 90s, sex workers would warn each other, never go to the pig farm. Now Robert Picton is locked up for murdering six women, but he bragged about killing 49. His brother David has been spotted down here. Picton is not the only predator to come to the downtown east side. We have a crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women. What's it like overnight? Scary. It's scary. The girls are, are working. You know, they start working around 11. So they'll come in in the evenings and, and start getting ready for work, finding out where the bad dates are, where money is around here, you know, who's gotten paid, when the longshoremen get paid every Friday. The girls have big smiles on their faces, you know, and uh, they, do, um, they do drug dates. You know, the guys come along with the drugs that they want, and uh, they spend time, they'll spend a whole evening with, with a guy for drugs. So they come in and they get ready to go and they find out exactly what's happening on the streets, you know. They find out which, which of the dealers are, have been robbed, which means that you just stay away from them. You know, you just stay away from them because they will rob you. And uh, so, you know, they, they find out where it's safe and where it's not. And, and then they head out around midnight, their first break. They'll go they'll get their drugs to come back in and they'll get well. And then they'll... They'll go out to see what you know to to see if they can break again. What do you mean by break? The first time they get a, they get a date, yeah, and the first time they get a date, it's a blowjob, a handjob, because they just want the money and they want it to be as fast as humanly possible, you know. And and later on in the evening, romance as far as as that goes, they'll they'll try and get a drug date, and then they'll break in between on that so they've got cash. They, they, you know, they tap dance as fast as they can to to get their money, and to stay well. And it's um, it, it's it's a horrible, horrible drug, and it, they're not even getting heroin. You know, they're getting benzos. You know, a bunch of years ago, I I overdosed on a mix of benzos and and opioids myself, and I was out for most of the day. Yeah. And I can't remember anything about it. No. I mean, that must put people here in a real vulnerable spot. Yeah. Yeah, it does. 
It does, because when they go down, and if they're with a date, they're down in his car, you know, I mean, or upstairs. And, you know, he's not going to go running down to the staff, and, you know, he'll, he'll probably rob her. And then she doesn't wake up until, or doesn't wake up, you know, and... You know, you know that there should be around at a certain time, and we we ask, we always ask. We put we'll put a missing persons out after four days if we know that they come every day, and we'll find out for the girls on the third day. You know, if they can see her, if they have seen her, or whatever. And uh, on the fourth day, we'll put out a missing persons. I can't express enough how much violence marginalized women who are living in extreme poverty have expressed that they have experienced. Jade Boyd is a research scientist with the BC Center on Substance Use. It's such a big issue that when asking women about their experiences of overdose, they're talking about experiences of violence. There was one particular instance where A woman described a date overdosing and was fearful of contacting the police or um, calling 911 because of previous discrimination and stigma they had felt from first responders, so instead went to the staff at Sister's Base. That's where they felt safe. So this was a fatal overdose? Yeah, it was a fatal overdose. So the date died, and she went to Sister's Base to to seek help? Mm -hmm. The amount of trust that um, that particular woman placed on the staff at Sister Space is significant because women are, are feeling discriminated against by some police, by some first responders. Over the course of the first year Sister Space was open, Jade spoke with 45 women who used drugs at the site. Her study asked why it was different from other safe consumption sites, why the women liked it, and if they'd keep coming back. They didn't have to have what they felt like men leering at them or saying rude things or uh, just trying to exert power um, control over their drug-using practices enabled many women in the space to have some agency over how and, you know, why they were using drugs at that moment. They felt like sister space was really calm. They used that term very often in comparison to the other sites that they found more chaotic. And that can sound kind of gendered, okay, the woman's site is is calm, but actually I think it's pretty important in the context of experiencing structural and everyday violence that women have a space that's, you know, a site where some women can feel a moment of calmness. All these issues are important because we don't have a lot of women-focused and culturally responsive harm reduction interventions. They remain underfunded and underprioritized, even though these are real issues that women are having to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Funding is precarious at Sister Space. When they wanted to expand hours to open overnight, there wasn't any money left over for cereal in the morning, so the cereal had to give way. Pat tells us that, in part, funding is a numbers game. For one, less people use this place than other mixed-gender overdose prevention sites. Like every other safe consumption site, 
there hadn't been a single fatal overdose at Sister Space. But unlike places like Insight, there also hadn't been that many non-fatal overdoses either. Only 71 since Sister Space opened two years ago. That's really low. Some accountant might look at those numbers and think, every overdose that's reversed actually costs more. But Pat sees it differently. Narcan isn't the only way to prevent a fatal overdose. Unlike most places, there's no time limit here. You don't get kicked out after 15 minutes. And that means that women sometimes can hang around for hours. They can do a tester. They can pace themselves. There's no rush. They can go slow. Things get risky when you have to rush. Maybe there would be fewer non-fatal overdoses at other sites if they did the same thing. Anyway, Pat found out that unless something changes, Sister Space was going to have to shut down the overnight shift. But there was no way Pat was going to let that happen. We were trying to impress on the girls that, that if they didn't actually make it known that they wanted this open, it was going to shut down. When it finally clicked in that they had to do something, they actually did a letter writing campaign. And they, they got everybody to write letters, not just sign a petition, but to write letters. I mean, there, there, was, there was a couple of them that were like, the girls are, there's some of the girls that have a really, a real street facade around them like that, and, and they, it doesn't break down easily. So, you know, basically, one of the girls was writing it, and, and she said, I can't write. And she was functionally illiterate. And she said, would you, would you, would you help me write it? And I said, I'll, I'll, t- I'll write what you tell me, but I'm not going to put anything else into it. And she was, she was saying that just in the short few months that it had been open from 12 to 6, this was a place she could come to when she was scared. Now, this is a girl I never thought got scared. She was just that kind of, you know, you just didn't fuck with her. and, and Yeah. This was, this was a good place. And I, I said, well, you're going to have to say more than good. You know, like, like good is a very broad term. And she said, it's a safe place. It's a place I like. She said, and it's a place that I've cried in. She said, I've sat in the corner and I've cried because friends of hers have died, you know, and, and that. And she said, and nobody even said anything to me. Nobody tried to hold me. Nobody tried to make me feel better. Nobody tried. Then, you know, everybody said, are you okay? And it was like, yes. Do you want something? No? Fine. We left her alone. And she said, and that was so good. I could just cry. I didn't have to explain it. Everybody was around if she needed somebody. You know, like there, she wasn't alone, but we left her to deal with what she was doing on her own, and she had the space to do that. The city decided to keep funding the overnight hours, but not for long. The funding runs out at the end of August, in just a few days. According to Atira, the nonprofit who runs Sister Space, Vancouver Coastal Health told them that Sister Space is not a priority, for this simple reason that women aren't dying of overdose in the same rate as men. We reached out to Vancouver Coastal Health. They told us that while Sister Space's work is important, they fund eight overdose prevention sites around the city, and they only have the money to keep them open for 12 hours a day. They also said that men are dying at a disproportionate rate compared to women, and they want to make sure that men are using these spaces.
The story of Sister Space, in a lot of ways, is a story of what Vancouver's like right now. The province just released new overdose stats, and things are still very grim. But for the first time since 2016, we're starting to see overdose deaths go down just a little. And if you've been listening to this show, you know why. In Vancouver, we have a few different OPS sites, like the backroom of Vandu, where Sheffy and Boomer work. We've also got people like Justin who can fly into action if someone goes down in the street. And we got Jay and Sam working in the SROs. We're all old hands at this now. But if you ask Laura Shaver on our editorial board, she'll say there's another reason too. It's because so many of us are already gone. Just because the stats have changed, it doesn't mean things are getting better. In fact, they're getting worse. We've started to see benzos mixed into the drug supply. People go down, and then they're out for hours and hours. It's like people are ODing and getting roofied at the same time. This is particularly terrifying for women. Sometimes they wake up and have to figure out if they got assaulted while they were out. And people are still overdosing a lot. The Georgia Strait did a little digging and found the number of people overdosing at Insight is actually up. And so are 911 calls related to ODs. And then there's housing. There's not nearly enough affordable housing and there's more expensive condos on Hastings Street than ever before. Lots of people were forced to live in tents in Oppenheimer Park, but now the cops are clearing everybody out. This isn't just an overdose crisis anymore. You can't even call something that lasts for years and years a crisis. This is just the way life works in Vancouver now. This is just the daily grind. This city is totally fucking broken. And sometimes it seems like one of the things we're doing right is Narcan. But the truth is for me, when you crack open an ampule of naloxone, in some ways, it feels like a failure. It's an intervention for what could be the last couple of heartbeats of someone's life. It's an acknowledgement that we had years and years to make a difference, to fix this, but we failed. The decision to shut down Sister Space's night shift shows that we still don't get the point. The sort of shit happens there that can prevent overdoses from occurring in the first place. People feel safe. People have a community. And they have a sense of purpose. What does it say about Vancouver if we can't even give people a place to feel safe at night and a bowl of cereal in the morning? Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Special thanks this month to Sister Space for inviting me in and letting us spend so much time there. August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day. Events are taking place around the world. Check out overdoseday.com. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and... Sharice Kiwatton. R.I.P. Sharice. Crackdown is produced by Polly Legier, Lisa Hale, Alexander Kim, and Gordon Caddock. Sam Fenn is a senior producer. Our science advisors are Ryan McNeil, lead of the qualitative and community-based research program of the BC Centre on Substance Use, and Jade Boyd, a research scientist with the same centre, the BCCSU. 
Both Ryan and Jade are assistant professors in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Original score written and performed by Sam Fenn, Jacob Dryden, Kai Paulson, James Ash, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam with accompaniment by Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We get funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you like what we do, support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thank you to all of our Patreons. Crackdown is a harm reduction site, so we do Narcan training. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, and review. It helps. We're on CITR and Co-op Radio in Vancouver and CFUR in Prince George. We're happy to be on your radio station, too. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is CrackdownPod.com. Our next episode drops at the end of September. Be safe and keep sex. Uh, it has to be nurtured and protected, like the headstock of a 1991 Gibson SG, oh, yeah. which I've yeah. recently found this is, is really bad. <laughs> you have been listening to a Sided Media production. C I D E D. Find out more at SidedMedia.ca.